Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Since the age of 14, when her first script was accepted for a young playwrights conference, Sarah Walker has enjoyed an illustrious writing career. As a journalist, she's written feature stories for the likes of The Good Weekend and Vogue Australia. And she was chief sub-editor of the New Weekly magazine for a few years, all the while completing a BA in communications at UTS in Sydney. As an author, Sarah's written six young adult novels, including Camp for Laurel, winner of the Children's Book Council of Australia, Book of the Year in 1999, and the adult novel Tin Man. As an actress, Sarah starred in Paul Cox's acclaimed AFI-winning film, Man of Flowers, which I just watched recently and is incredible, worth checking out. As a playwright, she co-wrote with Kate Sabarano, Love and the Bottom Line, a one-woman show which Kate performed a few years ago at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. Since moving into television, Sarah has become one of Australia's most in-demand writers and script producers. All Saints, Winners and Losers, Wrong Girl, Neighbours, Wonderland, Home and Away, Wentworth, and the current actor-nominated hit, The Secrets She Keeps, are a few of her credits. Sarah is currently in development with a few US production companies, Iron Ocean and Gotham on a novel adaptation, Echo Lake on an Ellen Dakota fanning project, and a TV series for Charlize Theron and her company, Denver and Delilah. I've collaborated with Sarah on a few different projects over the years. In particular, I directed a bunch of episodes of Home and Away, which were written by her. Like many successful people, Sarah has an incredible work ethic. But what's most apparent is that her words just leap off the page and bring the story and characters to life in such a compelling way. You just can't put it down. Please welcome to The Blank Canvas... Sarah Walker. Sarah Walker, thanks for coming in today. It's a pleasure to be here, Lee. Thanks for asking me. I'm honoured, actually. That's cool. Coming in, it sounds like I'm saying come into my fancy studio. In fact, it, it's our apartment. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming in. That's okay. <laughs> All the better, actually. <laughs> it's nice and relaxed. Oh, that's good. Look, you may have listened to some of the Blank Canvas podcasts or maybe not, knowing how busy you are, but you probably know, really, it's just all about inspiring people to create, whether you're a professional artist, whether you're a gardener, whether you're, I don't know, like playing with electronic circuit boards. I don't really care. I just think one of the great joys in life is to create, and I want to inspire people to do that. I think it's a fantastic idea. I have actually listened to a couple of the podcasts. I've really enjoyed it. It's very, I mean, they're all very different depending on whether you know the person or not more personally. And I, I think it's just interesting to get a, an, a window into the mind of some of those people that you've been speaking to. I was interested in Tony Ayres, obviously, because he's a much more accomplished version of me, if you like, a writer, producer, um, who's got some wonderful titles under his or credits under his belt, um, but it was lovely listening to his thoughts on creation and his story. I, you know, congratulations on doing the podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, I think being very humble, I, I, he's 
exceptionally accomplished, but you are as well with some <laughs> awesome credits and titles under your belt, uh, belt as well. But, um, well, that's cool. Okay, great. So you probably know it's, it's kind of appealing to a really broad demographic. It's hopefully appealing to everyone, not just industry people. So I will, you know, ask some specifics that I'm personally curious about that will appeal to people in the industry, but generally it'll be, you know, broader than that. Okay. Yeah, cool. So it's probably worth also saying... You're my cousin. Yeah. <laughs> and We've only just found out. <laughs> that's right. So so people know out there, but I guess we didn't really have a huge amount to do with each other growing up. No. We kind of connected up later on because we wound up in similar businesses and then we've collaborated on some things and, and that was wonderful and we've, you know, become good friends um, and our partners have become good friends and all that. But I don't know a lot about the beginning of your story and journey, so, um, so I'm kind of curious about that as well. But I guess from knowing you, I can see you're a very driven person and, you know, to succeed as a professional, probably in any business and be really successful, but particularly in the arts, it takes being driven to succeed Mm -hmm. because there is just relentless knockbacks and um, a huge amount of work that you do that you don't get paid for. It has to be an absolute burning passion to continue doing it. Correct. (laughs) Um, So... I guess it's like a million-dollar question asking you this off the bat, but what drives you? I saw a meme recently, I actually posted it, and it really spoke to me. I think it said, the creative adult is the child who survived. And I think that, for me, that's really true. Uh, you know, trauma, childhood, you know, trauma, I think, um, listening to Tony, actually, the other in that podcast, I was hearing and it really spoke to me about how his trauma had made him into a creative person by writing stories. Um, I was definitely, I had an interesting childhood and yes, you're right, we didn't see much of each other because uh, we grew up in sort of separate family units, I guess. My parents divorced when I was nine months and my mother, in those days they didn't have any single mother pension or anything like that so she had to go to work and women were paid very differently from men so if you're unskilled she really had to work three jobs just to make enough money to survive and so as a consequence of that she gave me to a family a Salvation Army family and I ended up living with them till I was four and a half and mum would come and pick me up on the weekends and but that was a very obviously a formative experience um, that family was delightful they had five children of their own and they had chooks and dogs and cats and all the things that I love Um, and then when I was four and a half mum remarried and uh, she took me back from that family but I think as lucky as I was actually to have an incredibly uh, loving foster family I think being given away and then being given back they were both really big traumatic incidents in my life And, you know, for me, when I went back with my mother, she'd remarried a beautiful man, um, but it was like losing my family. And I think in those days, a lot of people didn't understand the psychology of children or they weren't really that attuned to what happens. And I I don't think it occurred to my mother that I would miss those people that I'd spent four and a half years of my life with. So it felt like my family just died. And I am still in touch with my foster mother she's 97 (laughs) my biological mother has now passed she passed a year ago um so I think when I was a child I I was very withdrawn um or a dreamer as you you might 
say. And I spent a lot of time, a bit like Tony was speaking about, um, making up stories. And I think as I grew older, I chose to write them down. And my mum would tell you that I was always making up poems and <laughs> from even four years old. Like I, I was always, I suppose, a, a writer <laughs> from very young and I just, at school I ended up writing a book um, to amuse my friends. But the book was really about the things that I wanted to happen to me, so creating my own story and making the, making. I, I suppose manipulating the characters in it to be what I would like or what satisfied me. And then that just led into when I was 14, I replied to, in the, in the old days, Lee, before the <laughs> internet, um, they used to have ads in papers like, and there was an ad for a, a young playwrights conference and you had to write a script and send it in and I wrote a script and sent it to this um, address and I was accepted. So when I was 14, I went off for a week to the Young Playwrights Conference. And as part of that, they took us to the theatre on our first night. And I had not been to the theatre except to see um, my parents had taken me, I think, to see Jesus Christ Superstar, which was pretty exciting. Um, Marsha Hines was playing. John, John English. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, Trevor I saw White. that production too, incredible. <laughs> was so exciting. Um, but apart from that, I hadn't been to the theatre and I went to see a play called Backyard, which was by Janis Belotis, and it starred Brian Brown and Michelle Forden and Joan Sidney and David Slingsby. And that, it was at Nimrod, which is now Belvoir. But watching that play, not only was it, exciting and fascinating as a 14-year-old to go, oh, there's real live actors on stage, you know. It's not like telly. Um, it happened to be 1978, I think, and the person sitting behind me in the steps of the theatre, which was everyone sat on the steps, was John Travolta. And he'd come to see Brian Brown because they'd been in a movie together. And I thought, oh, wow, like, you know, I'm 14. This is just post-Greece. John Travolta is the biggest star in the entire world, practically. And um, I don't know, sitting there just set me on fire. And I then became um, an actress for about eight years. And I gave up writing for that period of time. And then... I had a me too, hashtag me too incident, um, which then made me give up acting and I went back into journalism, writing and eventually, you know, came out the other end a writer and, I, and I'm very grateful for that. I wasn't a very good actress, <laughs> but I was, um, yes, a much better writer than I am an actress. But, you know, it's those, that whole journey obviously informs my work. Um, I, I can remember being so switched on by the theatre that I, I was living, I, came, I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney and from 14 years old after that first play I would get on the train as often as I could and I would ride into the city after school or on a weekend and I would sit on the steps of Nimrod Theatre uh, before the production went in and I would watch all of the actors and the director and then I would watch the audience go in and then as soon as everyone had gone in I would get on the train and go home again. I just wanted to sit there and, and be around the theatre and one day 
after doing this for some time, I think the box office people had noticed this strange <laughs> teenager sitting on the steps of the theatre um, and then going home. And so the theatre manager uh, came out and sat down next to me and said, what do you, you know, what's your name and what do you do and why are you here? And I said, I just want to be around this. And so she said, well, um, you can come to any production you like as many times as you like. If you come to this theatre, you can come in as soon as the audience is seated and we'll give you a seat up the back and you can watch. And so I went to every production that year for some of them six times and I would sit up the back of the theatre. And what I didn't realise, you know, I thought I was just enjoying the process of the excitement of being there. But what I didn't realise is that I was soaking up all this information, not only about dialogue, um, dramatic structure, but how every audience is different, every interpretation of every line is different. If somebody did a line a different way one night, the response would be different or the actual, the play would change as a result of that. And I think I was preparing myself to be a writer without even really knowing it. Yeah. And I, you know, I look back at that 14-year-old um, sitting on the steps of Nimrod and I think that was where the, clearly I was destined to become part of that industry. Wow, that's so cool. I've never heard that story. See, there you go. <laughs> there are many things still to know about each other, Lee. Wow, that's amazing. You touched on so many things there. There's so many things I want to know more about. Um, we'll come back to the theatre and some of those other things. Just tell me that teen experience, well, let's just put it out there. You've wrote seven young adult novels. Um, the first one was at 14. And it won, is that right, 14? No, or was it, no. Which was I, the, um, the first Camp I, for One? Camp for Laurel, I, I actually wrote, the first novel I wrote for teenagers was a book called The Year of Freaking Out. Oh, that's right. And that was a, a young gay novel, which yep. was extremely radical at the time. Yep. Um, I think there was only other one other out there that I know of. Um, and, in fact, it was so risky that the publishers asked me to write another book first so that it wasn't my first novel, so that I didn't become pegged as a gay um, teenage right. writer or young right. adult writer. Um, I was actually in my 20s when I wrote that first book. I wrote a book at school, but it wasn't published. I just okay. did it for my um, okay, gotcha. for my peers. But that ended up being released, that one, and it won like Book of the Year or something, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think um, Cam for Laurel won Children's Book of the Year. Okay. And I wrote another one that won some awards called uh, The Colour of oh, Watercolours. Okay. Uh, I can't color, even color remember. Of, color of money. Um. <laughs> it was the color of something. <laughs> had water in the title, um, which was kind of set around Nelson Park area. I actually have to give it up to a wonderful writer called Amanda Laurie, who was my lecturer at university. I wrote the first book, The Year of Freaking Out. Um, I wrote the first two chapters, I think, for my term at um at uni. Uni, which yeah. was a Bachelor of Communications at UTS. And she asked me for another chapter. So I wrote another chapter and she just kept asking for another chapter until I had a book. What a great teacher. Brilliant. And so she read those chapters on her own time. And as soon as I'd finished, she said, you can take that to a publisher now. And wow. those kind of people change your life. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. And so you came out earlier than that. So... What age was that? You mean came came out gay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was fortunate to have a mother who had actually had a lesbian experience herself. Right. So she was a very open-minded person and, and very intelligent. Um, 
crackers. Like my mother was a tricky one, but she did have some wonderful qualities and one of those was that she had no, you know, she was not racist. For her time and place in the world, I think she was incredibly, I guess, open. And she had always signalled to me that she would, you know, everybody is equal and there was no problem if I was gay. I don't know whether she saw it coming, but I do know that, you know, when I was growing up I absolutely wouldn't wear girls' clothes. I wanted to be a boy. Um, And I think she probably knew. Um, And I went out into the world very young. And in the 1980s you left school at 15. You didn't stay on for your HSC unless you were super bright. Um, and I was certainly driven to go to the theatre and into the arts. So I, I left school at 15. I started working and I left home at 16. And during that period, I think I was still in flux about what I actually was. I was sleeping with men, but I also met this amazing woman and fell in love and I was about 16. So that's when I came out. And I never had any issue with that. I always feel like, People can only be homophobic if you give them the space to be homophobic. Um, I don't think my dad, your uncle, <laughs> was thrilled by having a, a lesbian daughter, but I never gave him the space to say that. Um, if I went up to visit him, I would just bring my girlfriend and there was no discussion. I never asked anybody's permission to be gay. I never asked anyone's opinion of whether I should or shouldn't be. I just expected people to accept it. And so people did. And whether they went away saying other things behind my back or had other thoughts, um, people are very trained to be polite. Um, So if you cue them that they don't have space to judge you, then they usually don't at least judge you to your face. And mum and dad were entirely accepting, my stepfather that is. Yeah. Well, I think it was a good approach and it, and it worked. Mm. And you've just pushed on and lived your life and you're a good person. Oh, thanks, and, Lee. And so that's what people put their attention on. Yeah. You know? I think now I've been in a relationship for nearly 25 years um, and I know that's lightweight by yours and Kate's standards. <laughs> no, no. Anything over 10 years is good going, particularly in this business. Yeah. You know, now I look at it, I think I've held Christmas for the last 15 years at my house. So, you know, dad and my dad is married to my aunt. That's a whole other story. So dad's married to my mother's sister. So my dad and my aunt and my mother and um, all of our family have been there for the last 15 years for Christmas. And I, and I think about my dad, his acceptance now that we've, we've been a couple for so long. It's just like any other couple. And I think he's realised that over time. Yeah, he's a great man. I love you, Dad. Yeah, he is a good man. Yeah. And my son has two fathers as well. And I can remember a man who was a, I guess, a product of his time and his era and his type of manliness, which was, you know, particularly bullish, I suppose, in in some ways when he was young, Um, you know, wouldn't abide poofs or things like that. And now... At Christmas time, of course, he his Christmas dinner with <laughs> my son's gay fathers. But not only that, he now goes to their house and has dinner with them without me. So this is how things change over time and I think people mellow and, and times are different and that's something that's wonderful to, you know, to see the progression of people's attitudes and change. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. Thanks for sharing that. It's okay. <laughs> 
Um, tell me about Man of Flowers. That's one of the films you made, um, and I just watched it again yesterday. Oh, you did not. I did. I ab- <laughs> absolutely did. So it's it's actually a very, very special film. Mm, it is beautiful. So uh, it was directed by Paul Cox, written by Bob Ellis. I think the concept was by Paul Cox, but the screenplay by Bob Ellis, if the credits are right. Yeah. And Sarah stars in it. In a, in a controversial role. I typecast as a lesbian already. <laughs> I was 18. Yeah. But um, it's a really powerful film. You can watch it. It's on Vimeo. Anyone who wants to watch it, check it out. Uh, I mean, it's like a classic European art film set in Australia. But I couldn't help but be moved by the kind of art films we watched growing up and how much it's changed, like the art films being made for television now and on you know, the streaming giants. But that's a conversation for later. Um, the film, the film was incredible. Mm. Like when I first saw it, actually, I don't know. I was probably a kid, but I didn't really like it when I first watched it. I'll be honest. But I watched it again, and I was really moved. Um, tell me about that experience uh, personally, and also working with Paul Cox, who's one of our great directors. Yes, the late Paul Cox yeah. and the late Bob Ellis. Yeah, Bob Ellis was such a character. Um, I actually auditioned for a film called Nostradamus Kid, which was a Bob Ellis um, script when I was about 15. And I was cast in it alongside uh, Robert Menzies, who is a wonderful actor, but he and the grandson of the Robert Menzies. Um, But they couldn't get the film up. Um, I think it then came out like 10 years later. With Noah Taylor. Yeah, Yeah. correct. Um, But I had auditioned for that and... In the meantime, Bob and Paul decided to do something radical, which was to try to create a European-style film with no money. Um, I think that film was made for $200,000. And, yes, that was a lot more back in 1983, but it wasn't anything like the production budgets that they would have expected to. <laughs> bit of, bit of Sorry, noise, noise upstairs. That's not um, a, a stomach. <laughs> um, yeah, they, there was it was a very small budget for the time, and they wanted to prove that you could make a an outstanding film. I don't blame you for not liking it. It's kind of esoteric and it's a little bit wobbly in parts, but I think that it's definitely a beautiful, beautiful visually. And what they were attempting to do was fantastic, and they pulled it off. So working with Paul was amazing. He was he created a world on set. He made you feel like you were inside a, a love bubble. Um, he was a very interesting, old-fashioned European man, and his wife was also on set. Um, you know, the experience was wonderful. Patrick Gillet, who was the producer, I haven't seen him for a very long time, but he was. Yeah, I think everyone just felt like a family. Tony Llewellyn Jones was in it. I feel like that captured something for me. It was probably the last major thing I did as an actress, um, which was a supporting role on that. Chris Haywood, oh my God, what a wonderful actor. Um, and Alison Best played the lead. That has captured me on film at the age of 18 forever. Beautiful. And it is actually quite special for me to go back and look at that, you know, snippets from that and realise how lucky it was to be part of that project. Yeah, must have fired you up to want to make movies, particularly that experience. It did. I grew up absolutely obsessed with movies. 
you know, it's such a cliche being gay, but Judy Garland and all those old 19, you know, 40s, golden years of Hollywood movies. And I would skip school if there was a particular movie that Bill Collins was showing on the midday um, on television and I really wanted to see it. And I was so obsessed with them. This is pre-VCR days, so you couldn't record anything. So I would get my tape player, my, you know, little ghetto blaster it wasn't even a ghetto blaster then a little recorder and put in a tape and I would tape the entire film and again without realizing it you know when I would listen to those uh, films back what I was listening to was the dialogue I couldn't see anything anymore but I was hearing the rhythms of speech and so that I suppose helped to shape me as a writer as well just listening to dialogue from movies that I'd taped during um the midday movies and I think that for me from the age of 14 my goal was to win an academy award and so I was very focused on film I didn't want to work in television had no interest in it whatsoever and at university I, I was writing films and I, I guess that has been my dream and then first of all i I, a whole lot of people started going to Hollywood that who hadn't been before. Actors tended to go. Actors were, you know, it wasn't unheard of. Mel Gibson, people like that. But writers, no. So the idea of going to Hollywood when I was in the early part of my career was absolutely ludicrous. It would be like when I was a kid going to Disneyland. And the things that we knew about Hollywood was, you know, Marilyn Monroe went there and, you know... <laughs> And it would be the death of you or the, <laughs> or the making of you. You know, you might win a, an Academy Award. But it was still something that was so far beyond reality for someone who was a, you know, writer living in Sydney. Yeah. And then suddenly things started to shift. The world became smaller. And people that I had, I guess, mentored or gone through the ranks with in TV here um, started going over there and someone suggested I should, I should go. And I laughed and then I thought about it for a while and then I thought, no, why not? Give it a crack. So I went over to get myself an agent and the agency that I landed with was Gersh. And I remember telling them that I wanted an agent to get to make films and that I, you know, that was my intention and they all just shook their head and I didn't understand why. And then they said, you're a TV writer. TV is now king. Like, forget about film. And this was just as TV started to roll into Netflix and so on. And so inadvertently, I'd spent my entire career in television building up to the moment where television became king. And so I, it's just so fortunate that I am at the top of my game in television right at the moment when television's at the top of its game. But my goal is still a film and my goal is still to win an Academy Award. <laughs> Go for it. Yes. I, I reckon it's going to happen. Thanks. Having collaborated with you on a few things, you're an absolute gun and it's still entirely possible. I okay, so. so keep going for it. God, there's so many things to talk about. I mean, we need hours. We've got an hour, so we'll make the most of it. Okay. But that's pretty cool. That is incredible. What felt like a bummer all those years writing particularly serial TV, like yeah. Neighbours, Home and Away. Have you written more episodes of Home and Away than anyone else or has somebody passed you? I doubt that? anyone will pass me. I've, yeah. I think I've written maybe 275 or more episodes of that show. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone's in the position to do that anymore. Right. I was working two days a week plotting it and then I became a mother 
and I had to work out my life so that I could be a mother and a creative, as all of us have to do, juggle that. And I was fortunate enough, and I'm, I would not want to diss Home and Away or Neighbours. Those shows are amazing, their longevity. Um, they're certainly somewhere where you can learn your craft and hone it. Um, and I spent eight years getting fit on those shows, match fit. Um, so I would work two days a week plotting the show with others and then the rest of the week I would write an episode and that went on for eight years. So that, hence I have a lot of episodes. And then I moved on to Neighbours later, um, later in my career because I was working for Fremantle and I started writing for them as well. But what's interesting about that for me is that in Australia, working on those shows, that's meant to be in some way something that you don't really talk about. Nobody rates it. But when you're in America, they're absolutely super impressed oh, yeah. by anybody who has any show that survived that long and anybody who has that number or amount of time on a, on a long-running serial. Oh, look, I say to people all the time because, well, in fact, I directed some Home and Away with you while you were there yeah. and I directed some Neighbours later, um, not with you, but I've directed lots of different things. By far the two hardest things I've ever done were directing those two shows and whether you're acting, whether you're writing, whether you're shooting, whatever you're doing on those shows, they're the hardest film and TV gigs in the country. So if you can do them and survive and not burn out and deliver week after week, you're a champion. Thanks. I actually really do think um, one of my mottos is, or one of my beliefs is that you can't toss anything off. So every single Home and Away script I ever wrote or Neighbours script I ever wrote was the best Home and Away script that I could write or Neighbours script, the best you could possibly do. And I think the only people who become hacks in those shows are people who don't care enough about their work or their practice to make it good. And so I always delivered on time and I always delivered my best work. And I think if you do that, it doesn't matter what you're working on. Yeah. It won't damage you as a creative. I totally agree. Um, you are particularly fast, even though, yes, you've, you've done a lot. But to sustain that, um, I mean, you're... Well, lots of people have a good work ethic. You've got that, but you also have an incredible ability to um, to write and create quickly. Who knows how and why, but give, give us an insight while you're on, say, Home and Away, give us an insight into your day and, like, like how many hours do you sleep? Are you better at night? Are you better in the morning? Do you use, you know, blue index cards <laughs> with plot points or do you just have it in your head and you just go you know obviously it's been plotted um so it's not like a feature which different feature writers have different approaches to that but give us an insight because you're a bit of a legend in the business for how quickly you were able to create stellar scripts on those shows give us an insight into your day or your week oh lord there are so many ways of answering this question lee i obviously we'd be working from a plot and off a scene breakdown but i have a really great memory for story once the story goes in. And I think that was partly, I wrote um, diaries from the age of 12 to maybe 20 every day. And I would write down uh, whole conversations and, but I would have to remember them for the entire day till I could get home to my diary. And so I, I guess, again, just synchronicity, I trained my brain to remember stuff that I wanted to and revisualize things. So I do have a good memory. Once I've plotted a scene, I remember what it is. Um, 
or a storyline. So it's already in my head. I don't like to be bound to the theory that something has to take a long time to be good. And I have said in the past to people, to writers, young writers who are emerging, that you don't have to spend two years honing a feature film to produce something. And what I've found is that if you're just disciplined, if you sit down, I've written four feature films over recent years. Um, first of all, I write from 9pm to 2am. That's my golden hour. So I never get any sleep because once I had a child, I had to get up you know, early in the morning as well. But my primary time is when it's quiet at night and I can work through, I could easily work through till three if I wanted to. So you sit down and you write X amount of pages a day. So if it's a feature film, you write 10 pages and you don't go back. You just keep going forward. And at the end of 10 days, you have, you have a feature film script. Um, and then you go back and you start to polish it and spend the next six months or whatever fixing it. But you've got to get it out. You get it out an iteration. If you allow your thoughts about how long it should take or how polished it should be to stop you, you probably never end up with the 100 pages that you need. And a couple of people that have taken my advice on that have ended up with Monty Miller Awards and things like that for a script that literally took them 10 days to do the first draft. So... I suppose having discipline, sitting down and actually just completing a task and structuring it in such a way that it works for you is really important. And I also not worrying too much about the end result. You just have to get in and, and do it. That's my process, for instance, with a feature. Everything else, um, I'm usually working off the scene breakdown and I will go and do my swim in the morning <laughs> and I'll walk my dogs or take my son to school and have some breakfast or do Pilates and then about just after lunch I start to do my admin and start to work into my day and I will then work through probably until three in the morning or two at least um, and I can't stop that that's just who I am like I think anybody in the industry that has a passion like that tends to be driven to do that yeah I just happen to be fast in fact nobody knows this Lee well very few people know it but I was asked to do a pilot script. I was paid an exorbitant amount of money compared to Australia to write a pilot script for a production that Charlize Theron was producing for a television series. And I was so busy. I was working full-time at Fremantle and this has also been a factor of why I had to do things fast is that I would usually have a job during the day, whether it be Home and Away or some other show, um, and then I would have to work at night. Yeah. on my own material yeah but I was absolutely slammed I think I was working on several projects Wentworth and um, Neighbours and various other things for Fremantle and the time was ticking away on my deadline for this pilot script and eventually I wrote it in four days between Christmas and New Year and sent it off and I was terrified because it, I didn't even really have the time. I normally leave a week between when I finish something and when I hand it in because I'll leave a week, let it breathe, and then I'll re-read it and fix it, polish it, and then send it off. I didn't even have time to do that. And, you know, four days later, I get a message that it's one of the best scripts anyone in that team had ever read. <laughs> and that was a massive relief. But also... It did confirm what I felt was that sometimes your first run at something is the right run. It has something raw and fresh. 
Um, of course, that script has been polished over time and over drafts, but that script then went on to open so many doors for me in Hollywood, despite the fact that that has not yet been produced. That script has gone out to everybody over there. And I'm sure that, you know, had they known that it took me four days, they wouldn't have loved it as much. But isn't that interesting? You don't have to actually cane yourself. Completely agree. Having lived with Kate for nearly 30 years, I've seen, you know, the same thing with her. I mean, she can write a song in, you know, a matter of minutes mm. and it's incredible. Um, but not everyone's like that and it, it wouldn't be appreciated as much if you told people literally how long that took to create. There was a wonderful film called Calvary. Have you seen that? It's no. by an Irish writer who... It was a few years ago, maybe five years ago, and it was a fantastic, beautiful piece of work. Um, I saw a, a masterclass uh, panel with him, I think at the Writers Festival, and, you know, one of the primary things everyone was saying was that it only took him 19 days to write, and I was like, you're a lightweight, mate. <laughs> no, I really did appreciate it, and it was great to hear someone who'd done such a great piece of work admitting that it had only taken 19 days, and... I felt validated by that because the film is, you know, an award-winning, wonderful piece of work. And on top of that, he happens to be a massive Home and Away fan. So it was like, yeah, let's admit to being Home and Away fans and writing fantastic uh, feature films. Oh, I love that. Well, I'll tell you something funny. Dust Off the Wings, the movie I made and, and co-wrote with a mate, we wrote that in eight days. Yeah. But... In this case, I should have spent 100 days on it. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. You know, I love Dust Off, off the Wings. I think it's so, um, well, again, it's raw. It's, some, what's beautiful about it, Lee, is that it actually, it isn't entirely polished, but it has absolutely captured the time and place. And in fact, the, there's a kind of a beat or a rhythm behind it that speaks to the material, that the context of the material. And I feel like it couldn't have been anything else. It, it was perfect the way it was. <laughs> um, thank you. You're being very kind. But you're absolutely right. Look, it would never have got made had I done it any other way. And it was actually just an experiment that exceeded its expectations. Had I known it was going to go to Cannes and like sell many territories around the world and get released at major cinema release here and all that, I would have done so many things differently and I would have taken more time and more care. But then it would never have been made. So for a long while, I looked at it like, oh my God, this is, you know, this is so flawed and so embarrassing. But now I sort of look back at it and go, wow, well, what an amazing little experiment that was. And um, but anyway, not about me. <laughs> Be about you. I'm yeah, happy with yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. um, no, the, the point was, I think you're absolutely right. Great things don't have to take a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you saying that just puts me in mind of how collaborative our industry is, and I think that is the beauty of it, yeah. that I, I have a script. Um, I'm, I've been collaborating um, recently over the last years with actors because I find acting, I, I'm not a great actor, as we've, already established. No, you did a solid job. I know I look adequate, but, you know, actors inspire me. So I have had a series of, I guess, collaborations with people and I'm still in collaborations with actors at the moment because working with other people who are creative, in fact, I have a play reading this afternoon with Daniel Cormack, uh, Marcus Graham, Zinzio Kenyo and Ben Gerard, and those people are coming together to uh, read a script, a play script that I wrote. Um, and that will then help inspire me. And 
I think when you talk about getting notes from people, there are notes that make your heart die, especially from networks and producers who may not be able to see the vision that you have. Um, but the process, you know, through the creatives of directors and actors, if you're lucky, every single person brings something that elevates that script. And certainly the best things I've had and seen on television have been um, changed by what everybody else brings to it and a lot of the time inspired by my enjoyment of watching actors and, and writing to their rhythms um, or thinking about who the director is and how they're going to shoot it. So while it's difficult to take on other people's notes and difficult to always address them, I'm getting better at that and I am getting better at being able to say no. This, this will work, you know, yes, I'll change that or I'll change it, but only in the way that I feel comfortable with. Whereas once I may have changed things to address um, someone else's notes that I didn't feel comfortable with, yeah. I will now change it, but I will find a way to do it that still makes sense to me. And that's just over years of developing your craft and feeling more confident about what you know to be true. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you're writing dialogue, how much, and you, you may not even know because it's probably just an unconscious process, but how, how much of dialogue is from things you've heard and, and, you know, overheard someone in a cafe and heard a line or this and that, how much is that and how much is you kind of creating a character and sort of permeating them and being them and then thinking like them and then writing from that point of view? Is that something you, you're aware of? I think that one of the things that has happened over recent years, um, a lot of the shows that I worked on had characters that were already in situ. Yeah. So I didn't have to create those characters and then it was just about listening to the rhythms of their speech and their character's speech and trying to, you know, stick within that. But over time with more original material, um, one of the things about working with actors in the collaborative process is that they absolutely give you detail and make you sink into much more about how that character might um, dress, speak. And if you are working, I, can, I, I wrote a script ages ago, a film script, and I wrote it with Judy Davis in mind. And so I gave that character the rhythms of her speech. I imagined her doing it, um, even though there was very fairly little chance she would do it. <laughs> In fact, she did read the script, but she decided the character did something that she found to be she herself, while she knew other people could do it, she wouldn't be able to understand why a character um, took the actions that they did, so she couldn't take it on. But it was so interesting for me that every, you know, I, am, I, I reckon 50% of people who read that script in the industry would say to me afterwards, you know who'd be great for that role? Judy Davis. And they could hear it in the dialogue. They could hear it in the rhythms of what I'd written. Um, and I think for me it's a very useful tool to pick a, a person or an actor or a, it doesn't have to be an actor, but somebody whose rhythms of speech I know who would be that kind of character and then so you muse for that for yeah. that character. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. That makes sense. I have one of your novels here, The Tin Man, which I read, I don't know, 25 years ago or something. You and three other people. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, and loved it. I haven't read it again uh, recently. 
Would you mind reading us a page? Oh, or, God, or, or yes, no, okay. Or something out of there. Oh, um, and, um, and then I want to ask you a couple of questions about that, that project. Okay, that sounds fair. <laughs> Let's see. I have not read this book since you read it either. <laughs> um, but actually I've, one of my um, best friends read it recently and a, a, a colleague. Yeah. And she was so um, interested in the fact that my prose writing was really good. It made me want to, inspired me to maybe start thinking about writing a book. It, it's incredible. It, it really is a powerful book. I mean, it could be the first page, whatever you think is a good page. I don't mind. Okay. Why don't I just kick off with the first page then? There aren't any rules about this sort of thing, nothing to fall back on. So as Ricky watches the woman walk towards him across airport linoleum, clack in heels. He lets himself go with the feeling that she's not walking across the airport linoleum. She's walking across time. She's walking across 17 years. And with each step, Ricky becomes younger. When she reaches him, he is a newborn baby without words, without concrete thoughts. He has an open mouth, ready to gasp its first breath of air. She is the breath. She is Camille, his mother. That's beautiful. Thank you. So this is a project which you've developed and wrote a screenplay, adapted it to a screenplay, and some heavyweight producers and people, you know, picked it up and developed it and you attach some seriously heavyweight casts such as Juliette Binoche. Academy Award winning Juliette Binoche came on board to play the lead. And um, I mean, this is kind of partly because I'm interested and partly because it's an insight for people as to some of the brutal barriers that we continually come up against <laughs> in the arts. And um, so, I mean, I was chatting with you at the time and it's like, oh, my God, you've got Juliet Binoche on board. This is going to happen. This is so exciting. Um, that Academy Award that you want to win <laughs> is just like within grasp. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, and then you can share the story if you like, but... I guess it was at a point of transition where the art films and the art world was sort of on the decline and streaming and TV was on the rise. So one part of your career was going gangbusters with TV, but your film sort of dreams were, <laughs> were, crushed. were, were crushed at that moment. Can you give us a, uh, an insight into what happened there? Sure. And in fact, I'll start by just briefly saying I, I wrote this project as a scene breakdown or treatment for a university project a good 10 years before I wrote the book. I wrote it as a film and then I realised that I wasn't able to make a film. There was no way of making that happen. So I took that film treatment and turned it into a book, which I hoped then would <laughs> become a film. So, uh, And that process took like 20 years be between all those things happening. Um, my agent was approached by Rachel Ward after she did that fantastic film, Beautiful Kate. And she wanted a, a rom-com script and she asked my agent if any of her clients had one. And so my agent rang me and said, look, Rachel Wood's looking for a rom-com. And I said, send her The Tin Man. And she said, Sarah, that is not a rom-com. <laughs> and I said, send her The Tin Man anyway. Because some years earlier, well, sorry, not years, it must have been only six months earlier, as soon as Beautiful Kate came out, in the cinema and I saw it, I thought, I want this woman to direct The Tin Man. And as I've already explained to you, at the age of 14, I met Brian Brown. And Brian 
you know, over many years had always remembered me because I was around the traps. And I thought, I'll call on Brian Brown to ask if Rachel will read it. So I wrote her a letter. I mean, I wrote him a letter or them a letter saying, would you please consider this book? And I never received a reply, for which I have scolded him roundly. <laughs> um, but then six months later, as I said, Rachel approached for a rom-com script and I got my agent to ignore that completely and send to the Tin Man. And three days later, I got a phone call from Rachel saying, I've just read your book. It's marvellous and I'd love to make it into a film. When can we meet? And we worked on it for maybe four years um, because we were, again, doing it on our weekends. So many weekends spent working and honing a script and we finally sent it off and uh, she, of course, Rachel brings with her gravitas and people you know, definitely are interested in getting on board her projects. So I was lucky to have her and Screen Australia was supportive and we got a letter of interest and so on and Hopscotch came on board. And then, as you were saying, we sent it out. We sent it out uh, to a lot of the top actresses but one of the early ones was Juliette Binoche and she came back and she was extremely interested and was willing to actually put off other projects to do it. But at that time, yes, TV was going up. Um, You couldn't get a high-budget art film up. And one of the other things that was happening, it just fell into this pocket where uh, women as protagonists had not yet started to become a thing, which they have now, yep. um, thanks again to really interesting roles in television. And so an actress like Juliette Binoche, who was a, an Oscar winner but also had been nominated for another Oscar, wasn't able to get a film financed on her own, which just blows my mind. And we needed her lover in the story to be cast and it needed to be a younger man who brought with him the rest of the budget if you like so if it was chris hemsworth i mean it's not i we never went out to chris sorry chris if you're listening but um someone like that who would bring funding yeah but there was not an agent or a manager out there who would allow a lead man who would bring that funding to play second fiddle to an older lead woman even if she was Juliette Binoche. So we couldn't get the rest of the money. We couldn't put the package together. Within a few years, everything had changed. First of all, she'd had a resurgence in her career and was readily able to fund films. And secondly, women as female protagonists, as leads, were no longer second class. Um, But it, it is all about timing in this industry. You can have all the pieces together and then for whatever reason, you're just not at the right time and place. And so that project hasn't thrived. It may well again in the future. I do look at people who get up and win Academy Awards and say, this project has been 30 years in the making. And they'll go, (laughs) oh, my God, that's going to be me. Um, But also, you know, another demonstration of that is... With the project I touched on earlier with Charlize Theron. So we had Charlize Theron as the producer. We have Kristen Stewart attached. We had Riley Keough, who is a wonderful actress, also in the double lead. We had um, Netflix. and you had Netflix wanting to put up a small fortune to make yeah, it. Yep. yep. Everything in place. But the team wanted an auteur-style director and they wanted it to be a woman. And right at that moment, everything had been changing in the the global thoughts about women. And they, um, you know, there was a new 
push to have female directors. So suddenly all the female directors in the world who were of the kind of quality that could do that uh, TV series and get financed and get the tick of approval were so busy that there wasn't any available. And that project has now been sitting there for three years with all of those elements in place, but we can't get a director who's available. Again, timing. If, if anyone had told me that you could have a TV series with all of those factors ticked off and still not be able to get it up, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it, people don't realise that when any film or any major series like that actually gets made, it's a, it's a miracle. It is a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> and so just keep praying. But it has, what it has taught me is that you can't, um, I said this in another way earlier, but you can't focus on the end result. If you can't enjoy the process, don't do it. Get out of this industry because it's about enjoying the process of creation and, and the people that you meet along the way and all the inspiring creatives that you get to work with. Um, that is what the joy and the richness is of this industry. If you are only to focus on actually what gets made, you would die of heartbreak like every day. But the other thing you have to realise is that script is the one I was talking about that's opened so many other doors. I'm now working, as a result of that script, I'm now working on a project for Jessica Beale. I'm working on a project um, for Ellen Dakota Fanning. I'm mentioning the actors because people will understand the, the, the level of that. But, of course, there are wonderful producers behind those projects as well. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I'm getting offers left, right and centre because that script that I wrote for that project that hasn't been made yet is still have, making its mark. And, again, you don't know a project when you get it may never get made, but you don't know all of the ripple effects that that has on the rest of your career just by having been engaged in that project. Yeah, I think there's a great lesson for everyone in that. doesn't matter what business you're in, is it? It's just, okay, just get busy, get amongst it, hone your craft, and you're never going to know where the opportunity that's going to change your life will come from. No. It's, uh, wow, that that is amazing. Is there, I mean, I've heard a few of the things, but <laughs> tell us some pretty wild things happen when you're in that Hollywood mix. Um, is there a story you can share as an insight into that development process with Charlize on that project? Um, well, there's. I guess I would share anything. I mean, Charlize is a brilliant actress and she's a, an, a force of nature. She really is. And she's funny and she's dirty. <laughs> so she's fun to hang out with. She... To have survived what she survived, I'm not going to go into her story, but you can look it up on the interwebs and um you know she survived something super traumatic and again you know the creative adult is the child who survived and so she's just an, a very powerful person and so one of the things that i would say about it, it she's also very real so as a producer when i we were out on our pitching tour she would come and pick me up from the hotel in her car every morning and drive me to the meeting so there was no divaness about that, that she actually is just a genuine collaborative uh, woman and working with her has been a joy. Um, but the good thing about working with someone like Charlize is that she brings the heads of the networks or whoever you're working with to the room. And that's one of the keys of getting things up, obviously. When you walk into a pitch room, if you have the head of Netflix and the vice president of Netflix in the room, 
you're much more likely to get a sale. And so going in with someone of her calibre definitely uh, gave us an advantage. And I think, you know, we're just lucky to work with people who are so brilliant. Um, as far as anything else, I, I mean... She invited me to a tribute night and she said, oh, they're doing this little tribute for me somewhere. And we'd been working together for a week and she would turn up in her active wear with a cap on and like hair not done or anything. And we'd been working like that for about three weeks together every day. And I, I in my little um, Airbnb, and you sort of lose sight of anything else except your, she, she decided, um, she was at that point directing it. And so we were working as a writer-director team. And all you're doing is the work and everything else goes out the window. But at the end of that, she said, oh, you know, would you like to come to this? And I said, oh, sure, it sounds great, fun, why not? And I get the invitation and it's that next day and it's black tie. <laughs> and you people out there don't know me, but Lee is looking across the table at me. Do I travel with black tie? No, I do not. So fortunately I had... Uh, my best friend was over in LA at the time and she had, she was staying with her best friend who has a wonderful wardrobe. So they dressed me up and put makeup on and sent me off onto this little tribute. And when I got there, I was um, on Charlize's table as was Seth Rogen and <laughs> um, uh, the lead singer of the Bangles and all these wonderful people and the people giving out the awards were people like Tom Hanks and Kristen Stewart and I was just, you know, I sat there thinking I am part of this world, you know, this amazing Hollywood world when I was pinching myself and I turned around to look at Charlize and she was in a spotlight all night because it was all about her. It was literally a whole night of tributes to her and she was in this amazing Dior gown and fantastic and her hair done and I just went oh my god you're a superstar and it was that I guess the realization that you the image of all of that which is the exciting part that child part of you that wanted to be part of all the glamour and the the uh, Hollywood dream is still excited by all of that and still you know pinching yourself about how you're sitting at this table and there's this massive superstar there. But the truth is it's all a lot of hard work and behind that the three weeks that we'd spent together in active wear and baseball caps was much more important and also much more rewarding than those moments at the table. But it's still fun. <laughs> Seth Rogen is really funny. Um, yeah, so I guess I, I got a glimpse into that kind of world and it's really... It feels nice to be here at this part of my career. I think it's about craftsmanship. It's, I'd say it's the same for you with directing, Lee, but you learn your craft over time. I always compare it to if you were a young stonemason and someone gives you a block, your first block of stone, and you're going to have to chip away at that and it's got to be put into place and it's part of a big edifice and it's just this small, tiny part and you're learning your craft. But at the end of it, if you've done enough hours and enough time and enough years, you create St Mary's Cathedral. And so I think what is important, though, is getting the craft of the chipping of that first stone right and all the stones that come afterwards and then, you know, you do end up with something beautiful, hopefully at the end of your career, where you can look back and say, well, I created that and... 
It's yet to come for me. My masterpiece is yet to come. <laughs> <laughs> there's still, well, look, you've created a, a heap of um, heap of wonderful work, but there's definitely more yet to come. That's probably a good point to talk about what's happening right now. You nominated for an actor award for The Secret She Keeps. Yeah, The yeah. Secret She Keeps. Yeah. And um, there's a bloody good show there. I checked it out. I hadn't watched it all. I'd watched a bit when it went to air, but I just um, watched some more yesterday. And it's actually very, very slick and very well done. Yeah, it's a very solid piece of Australian television. I'm quite proud of it. And yeah. I know that Lingo who produced it. Um, they're really excited about the fact that it um, did so well in BBC. And it was put on BBC One, which is really uncommon for an Australian series. Lingo is kicking goals. Um, I think it's good to see Australian television that is uh, reaching for, or is more ambitious in its scope and trying to be more sophisticated. Um, the production, you know, we had a wonderful director, Kath Miller, we had a beautiful cast. Um, and the book that Michael Robotham wrote, which was I adapted with another writer, John Gavin, that was just a wonderful piece of writing. Mm. So I was gifted that project. It was very difficult. I think the first thing I said when we got to the writer's room that day was my job is just to get the fuck out of the way of the book. And that's what I endeavoured to do. And I, I think it, you know, resulted in a really solid, you know, sophisticated piece of television for Australia. Yeah, it's really good. I can see why the BBC embraced it because it reminded me of a good, you know, British drama mm -hmm. series. No doubt that was the intention and the casting of the, what's the girl's name? Laura from, Carmichael. Yeah, from um, Downton Abbey. Yes. That's, that's the one she and was, was Yeah, it is. And yeah. And the lovely things. Jess DeGau and Michael Dorman and yeah. Ryan Corr. We had a great cast. But yes, they were working with English. Um, so our co-producers in that or our you know, funders were from England and the UK rather than America, which a lot of Australians yeah. do co-pros with America. And so they wanted a British yeah. um, lead. Did um, It looked really good as well. Like, did it have, did you have more time to shoot it than your average one-hour drama or something here in Australia? No, but I think Lingo are intent, you know, have, have this intention of creating much like really high quality work and so they actually spend more on each episode so okay. I, then they tend to put more money into production than a lot of per episode than a lot of other production companies and so as a result of that they make something that looks really great and they have wonderful crew mm. and Kath Miller who was the setup director really you know did a fine piece of work with setting the tone yeah totally Good luck on that. I, I you. hope you win. <laughs> <laughs> have we got? Have you got another five minutes? I just yeah, I yeah? do. Are we okay? Because yeah. we've sort of passed the hour mark, but there's so many things I'd like to ask. Um, just talk music for a minute. Yeah, music obviously is so crucial to setting the tone of any film, TV, audio, visual project. Do you have? any approach to that where you like do you listen to music when you're writing or what what do you do i just yeah i found just it curious absolutely secret of my success because i i when i was writing the tin man in fact i used some an elvis presley song edge of reality in it and i used um tower of strength and i actually used some of the lyrics and i had to get permission to do that but when i was writing the book i I listened to those songs over and over because they set the tone for me. And then 
it was 10 years after I'd finished the book before Rachel Ward got on board and she wanted me to write a script from it and I was thinking, how the hell am I going to go 10 years back in my brain and and come at this project again? And I listened to those tracks and I was there. And I feel like uh, subsequent to that, every single uh, project I have has its own soundtrack. So I will pick songs that tonally speak to what I'm trying to do, whether it's the characters or the story, and I'll create a little soundtrack, sometimes only three or four songs. And because I, you know, at the beginning of COVID, I had 11 projects bounce back at me in the same week because everybody went from production into development and I had so many things in my development slate from overseas and from Australia and everybody wanted their development Um, And I I was overwhelmed. I had these 11 projects. But fortunately, I also had 11 soundtracks. So I was able to move between those projects by putting on the music, uh, you know, the seminal song for that and then listening to that and then I would be in the tone of that and I would be able to go back into that project again. And I, I, I think that's a really fantastic tool to use if you're a writer to try to find tone through songs and I usually write the songs into my work. Um, I don't know whether there's been many instances where the songs that I actually put in are the ones that end up on the screen because of the cost of them, (laughs) particularly in Australia. And I do tend to use people like, well, it's not going to be an Elvis Presley song, so, you know, that's too expensive. But, you know, who knows? But, yes, I definitely use music. Oh, wow, that's cool. I was going to ask you, what do you do when you're overwhelmed and, um, you know, struggling to navigate your way through a project and you've answered that yeah. there? That's cool. Yeah. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um is there a favourite muse of yours that you go to? I know you mentioned Judy Davis, but is there a, is there a particular muse you go back to um, on different projects? There would have been when I was younger, but now that I actually work with real actors, my muse will be whoever's in front of me and collaborating with me in that work. Um, but I definitely, you know, I used to want to work with, for instance, Catherine Deneuve when I was really young. Sorry, Catherine. She's not a terrific actress, but there was something about her. I mean, she's got better over years and she is, has done some fine work, but she wasn't one of the great actors. But um, there was something about her that captured my imagination and inspired yeah. me. But there's been, you know, many people, depending on the project that I might have before I started working with actors that who are of the level that and calibre that could actually fund a show now that I work with and I would just put in place like Angelina Jolie or whoever it was that, you know, but I guess there's been a series and they all depend on the project. I mean, I'd love to work with Rachel Weiss. There's so many wonderful actors out there. Yeah. I could name 20. Yeah, okay. Okay, gotcha. And uh, like are you, some projects you're writing, some you're script producing as well. Do you want to be a showrunner? It's more American kind of thing where it's a producer, writer for people that don't know that term that are sort of running things. Is that something you're wanting to do or are you just you're happy running the, the script side of proceedings? I have a really strong opinion about this actually because, yes, I want to be a showrunner because I want an EP title and I want to have <clears throat> some agency within what I'm working on. So the idea of a showrunner is somebody who 
as you were saying, as a producer, but who writes it and who creates it and is kind of the vision of the piece and then who shepherds it through. And a true showrunner does all the things, not just writing, but really deeply runs a show. Um, but I believe there's very few people who can do all of those things as well as all the people who are trained to and gifted in those areas. And I think the worst thing that could happen is a, a writer who gets the power to then start telling directors how to direct or actors how to act or producers how to produce without really having the chops to do it. Um, my belief is that I can contribute to all of those areas, but I am never going to be the showrunner standing on a set telling the director just move the camera that way or, you know, do it again. Um, well, that's not what I intended. I think all of those things, those conversations should take place before production, but every facet of a production should be headed by somebody who is better than you at what they do. And so my job is to write it and to be there to consult and collaborate, but not to run the show in that respect. No wonder you're busy. No wonder they love you. You're a great <laughs> collaborator. Yeah, well, I think it's a gift to be able to collaborate with people who are creative and talented. How amazing. It's the most beautiful part of the industry, isn't it? Getting to collaborate with other inspiring and talented people. One of my favourite ones was collaborating with your good wife, in fact. Uh, we did a show called... Um, Love and the Bottom Line. Yes, at, for the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. And and that's a case in point where it was actually about Kate. You know, I sat in front of Kate and listened to her stories and created a show, a one-woman show, that was really about Kate. And it was written to her rhythm. It was written to the way that she would tell a story. And we set it to Burt Bacharach music and it had a little story behind it about love and broken hearts. And for me, that collaboration, sitting in your backyard in Melbourne, I'd fly down and it would just be me and Kate in the backyard and her mum, Cherie, just inside somewhere pottering around and we'd have a fire out there and Kate would be singing across the courtyard, the look of love. And I would go what is my life like? I'm sitting here, audience of one, to this amazing voice. But that was a great collaboration because it was so personal and intimate and Kate's an amazing, amazing performer. That was beautiful. It's actually worth revisiting that. We did film it. We're going to have to bring it out again and have another look. Yeah. It was a bit of a gem really, wasn't it? Because I think you were full-time in Home and Away World at that point and I think it kind of fired you up to, um, you know, throw your hat out in, into a few other rings at that time. It did. I definitely, that was, I think my son had turned eight and I'd done my stint working hard 57 hours a week doing Home and Away and I really needed to do something original and um, it was a conversation I had with Kate. She was doing a gig at the Opera House and it happened to be that one of my teachers from school, a wonderful poet called Dorothy Porter, had died. And there was a piece in the paper about it. And my best friend and I went to see Kate and Dorothy Porter and um, Catherine and I have been very close friends. And when we went backstage to the green room to talk to Kate and, you know, tell her how wonderful she was afterwards, she came up and she and she just happened to say, Oh, I'm in the Opera House and it's reminding me of Dorothy Porter because Dorothy's wake was held there or service was held there. And I had in my hand the article that I'd cut out and I just, I showed it to her and she said, did you just do that? 
like it was a magic moment of that was the only thing in my hand was an article about Dorothy Porter and Kate mentioned it. And so it was just something about that synchronicity that made me think, oh, well, there's something for us to do here. And so then we started talking about doing the one-woman show. And as a result of that, I think Kate did like two or three years of convening the Adelaide um, Cabaret yeah, Festival, yeah, yeah. which led, I'm sure, for her to meet all sorts of other people that she's since collaborated with as well. Yeah. And for me, it just reminded me that I really needed to start originating or initiating material again, so it worked for both of us. That's beautiful. In fact, we did a, an outline for a TV show called So Much Beauty, which I gave to Channel 7, and then they asked me off the back of having written that, well, it was a creation by of a one-liner by Bevan Lee, but I developed the entire show of Winners and Losers, which went on to be a six-year um, successful, you know, top-rating television show. I only worked on the first few, like, first eight episodes. But, yes, that came out of that. And then wow. no doubt many other things came off the back of that as well that I, I've lost thread of. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And then you co-created Wonderland. Um, was that with them? Fremantle. That was with Fremantle, right. Wow. Oh, my God. Well, sadly, we're going to have to <laughs> wrap this up. But uh, that was an absolute pleasure having a chat. Thanks, And um, I don't know, asking some of those questions that just when it's like, hi, how are you? Good to see you. You know what I mean? You don't get to have these kind of conversations very often, do you? No, no. It's family things. You don't. You sit down and talk about family things, I suppose. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I know you and I do have a relationship where we do talk about our work, but... I'm really thrilled and really honoured that you asked me to come on and chat with you. So I hope that your listeners enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. And, um, yeah, good luck at the Actor Awards. Thank you. All right. See ya. See ya. That's another ep done and dusted. I hope you enjoyed meeting my cousin. She's definitely down to earth, but such an extraordinary talent. To watch Sarah's actor-nominated hit, The Secret She Keeps, head to 10play.com.au. If you're enjoying the podcast, remember, subscribe, rate, review, and tell your friends. Or head over to the website, theblankcanvaspodcast.com.au. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc., and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.